Welcome to I Am the Space Where I Am. This is your host, Tony Award-winning set designer, John Arnone. In this podcast series, I'll be one-on-one with designers, playwrights, directors, and actors, and we'll be discussing the lives and careers of legendary theater luminaries and how their work developed. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the show. Michael Bennett was 32 years old when he conceived, directed, and choreographed a chorus line. The production received nine Tony Awards, the Pulitzer Prize, and ran for 6,137 performances. It opened on July 25, 1975, and closed on April 28, 1990. Bennett, at the age of 35, followed with Ballroom, for which he won a Tony Award for Best Choreography. It starred Dorothy Loudon and Vincent Gardenia. At the age of 38, he ended his Broadway career with the musical Dreamgirls, which won six Tony Awards, including Best Choreography. Michael Bennett sadly died at the age of 44 on July 2nd, 1987 from AIDS-related complications. Today, Jeff Hamlin, who was production stage manager for Lincoln Center Theater from 1985 to 2014, oversaw more than 75 productions. For Michael Bennett, he served as production stage manager on A Chorus Line, Ballroom, and Dreamgirls. Today, Jeff joins us to discuss the life and career of Michael Bennett. Please welcome my good friend and collaborator, Mr. Jeff Hamlin, to I Am the Space Where I Am. Jeff, welcome to I Am the Space Where I Am. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. (laughs) It's great to have you. I want to start off with a quote of Michael's, very succinct. He said, the only thing worse than a flop is a hit. <laughs> but it reminds me that at the opening night of A Chorus Line, this is the off-Broadway production at the Newman Theater. I'm standing in line with Bob Avian waiting to get a typical public theater opening night plate of food, you know, <laughs> Cheetos and cheese dip and grab a beer and a glass of wine. And he turned to me and he actually told me that. He said, Jeff, the only thing that's worse than a flop is a hit. (laughs) Well, you were involved in three productions that we're going to talk about today. A Chorus Line, Ballroom, and Dreamgirls. That's two out of three. Not bad. (laughs) How did you and Michael first meet? And how did you get involved in A Chorus Line? I had been working down at the public theater, thanks to Bernard Gersten, who was a teacher of mine at Columbia when I was getting my master's degree. And although I had been doing directing projects like young directors try to do, I started stage managing down at the Shakespeare Festival and had, in fact, just come off of being the assistant stage manager of a wonderful play called Short Eyes that was up at the Beaumont. That was in May of 1974. Later that spring, I was called by Bernard Gersten and said, listen, I want you to come down 
and meet Michael Bennett. He's been here. He has an idea for a show about dancers. He has these tapes. He showed them to Joe. Joe was very intrigued by them and has given us the Newman Theater for six weeks uh, for him to figure out if there's a musical in this. And can you come down tomorrow? Be here at 1230. <laughs> so uh, I went down to the festival from the Upper West Side and was told to wait in the lobby and the doors opened from the elevator and out came Bernard Gersten with Michael Bennett, but he didn't, he didn't look like anything I thought Michael Bennett should look like. I mean, he was, he was rather shut, you know, five, eight compact kind of very uh, athletic body. He was wearing faded jeans and Adidas sneakers and a football jersey. Introductions were made and Bernie said, why don't you have a chat? That's all I knew when I walked in to talk to Michael. (laughs) (laughs) The interview was really quite wonderful because he did, as I later learned, what he was doing with the stories that were told in a chorus line. How you draw people out to reveal their inner selves and inner needs and inner aspirations and fears and all of that. But he he totally relaxed me in the interview because he wasn't trying to find out who I was as a stage manager. He was really probing about my life. He seemed to have made a decision before I knew it because he looked at his watch and said, oh, come on, we got to go down to the Newman Theater. I have walking through the lobby. I have some people I think you should meet. So now my heart is racing. My voice was in my throat. I couldn't do anything. I walked into the Newman and he introduced me to Marvin Hamlish, Nicholas Dante. He introduced me as the stage manager. That was right before the final auditions for a chorus line. So that the next thing that happened while I'm standing there is Bob Avian came in at the top of the, you know, the auditorium there with Donna McKechnie. And Donna came in with a long stem red rose. The other dancers who had been called back for the final audition had wandered in. I was told to get them all in the wings at the Newman. And so dance bags are getting set down and they're kind of warming up for a dance rehearsal. And then Michael has Donna come up onto the stage and with Marvin Hamlish accompanying her, she sang Un bel D. <laughs> she said later, well, I knew I was going to be in the show. This was just kind of a pro forma thing. And where else would I get a chance to sing that song? <laughs> and fantastic. she sang it really beautifully. And we all were stunned. And there was a big silence in the auditorium and in, you know, in the wings. And then suddenly everybody hoots and hollers and applauds and <laughs> It simply was the final audition for a chorus line. And I was there for the elimination, which mirrored exactly what happens in the show. And with the end with uh, Michael thanking everybody else and standing on a line with all the selected dancers saying, this is my, this is my chorus line. And I was gobsmacked. (laughs) And when you think about it, We hadn't even started rehearsing and he had the show in his head. How many dancers were auditioning that day? We selected on that day, there were 19 in the cast eventually, but this early round, there were only 14. And how many were eliminated on that day? Uh, Another third. And they did all the dance combinations, you know. The core of the show, he knew. 
How old were you? I was 27. It's remarkable that you survived that day. Uh, it is truly <laughs> remarkable. First of all, in the room you said was Marvin Hamlish, yes. who had recently won three Oscars. Exactly. I mean, here was this little Jewish awkward kid. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, out of nowhere. And he's um, sitting at the he's sitting at the piano, noodling on the piano up on stage. My only experience with Marvin Hamlish was when I worked with Liza Minnelli on Minnelli on Minnelli. Yeah, on and Minnelli. whoever Liza summoned, they simply appeared, no matter what their involvement was. And I remember one day Liza came over to me and said, Listen, I want you to hear this rendition of Bobbles, Bangles, and Beef. <laughs> that Marvin's cooked up for me. So uh -huh. there was Marvin on this little spinet piano <clears throat> and hunched over in his characteristic style and Liza about two feet away from me. Yes, right. The other people in the room, you said, uh, was Nicholas Dante. Yeah. Who started off and continued as the book writer. But then at one point, James Kirkwood. Yes. Was added to the mix. He appeared. We did two workshops. James Kirkwood was on the scene at some point during the second workshop. That's when he started working on the show. And the reason was, quite frankly, that Michael and Bob felt very strongly that they needed a real writer. You mentioned two workshops. Uh, what was the duration and the nature of the first and second workshop? They were six weeks in length. We all signed aboard at $100 a week. We started the first workshop on August 24th. That must have been 1974 then. Oh, yes. We're talking 1974. But tell me this. What was uh, covered in the first and second workshop? When we started the Chorus Line workshops, I, I like to think of it as these rehearsals were without form and void. They didn't have a clear destination. At least it wasn't apparent to any of us what the destination was. A typical rehearsal day in the first workshops was a dance warm-up, then a very strong dance rehearsal, usually doing, as Michael used to say, building up the vocabulary, the dance vocabulary for the show. Things were thrown out, things were added on, and combinations were created, which the dancers were all learning. There was no music. You know, so when Marvin was there, he would noodle on the piano something, according to what Michael was, you know, felt he was looking for. If Marvin most of the time wasn't there, it was Bob Thomas, Michael's drummer. And he would sit with a kid over on the side, and he was the one that really ran that part in the first workshop from a musical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And Bob Avian and Byark Lee were taking notes and somehow keeping track of these various things that they had in their head from a dance perspective. I was going to ask, was there any kind of script at this point? What had happened that is, of course, Nicholas Dante, who was a member of the uh, original taping section, he did transcriptions of all the tapes. And then from those, he created monologues, the Paul monologue, Paul, who finally tells Zach the story of his life. And that was Nicholas's story. And that monologue was practically untouched through to when we got into performance. But the others, the monologues, whether it was a Pam monologue 
or it was a Judy monologue. It started not to matter. And the performers who had been in the tape sessions, which was most of them, started to feel kind of offended and threatened when, for instance, Nancy got Pam's monologue. Because <laughs> they started breaking it all down and switching it around and giving people things that weren't their story. That would be the other half of the day. It took a long time for anybody to realize how this was affecting what was going to be a chorus line, because what was happening with the monologue, as I think Joe Papp said at an early rehearsal, when is this going to stop being a therapy session? You told me you're going to do a Broadway musical. And I come down to rehearsals and here are all these kids spilling their guts out on the stage. <laughs> when is it going to stop being a therapy session? Of course, that's what actually was happening. They were breaking it down into all of these seemingly minuscule little pieces it wasn't until the second workshop where Ed Kleban and Marvin Hamlish would take performers off of the dance rehearsals and take them into another room. And they started giving them individual lines like Robert Goulet, Robert Goulet, my God, Robert Goulet, or my whole life was a secret or when I'm going to start growing tits. All these little things were pulled out of the monologue. And they started assembling them into these interesting musical vignettes and the montage section of a chorus line where it starts with a beginning of the Bobby monologue and then breaks into this whole fantasia of things that are danced and sung upstage and then goes back to the reality of the audition. But those were all the things that they were working on in that room. At the end of the first workshop, did you have a presentation to Mr. Papp? Yes, we did. And the one song that was played for him first up in his office, but then played with the cast being able to hear this version of it was at the ballet. There was lots of music that was thrown out early on. There was an early, the opening number was Judson 66300. They keep you holding forever. <laughs> you <know. laughs> How much time elapsed between the first and the second workshop? Oh, a couple of months. Really? Yeah. What was your activity during that hiatus? I continued to work down at the Shakespeare Festival doing other things. I worked oh. for Andre Gregory when he did a production of The Seagull up in Martinson Hall and also Wally Shawn's Our Late Night. What was the order of business when you began the second workshop? Well, the script started to come together. That period of time between the first and second workshop is that the creative staff was really working on the script. And that's why James Kirkwood came in and all of that. So there was a real structure starting to happen in terms of the line, the monologues going in and out of reality and inner thoughts. Who did they have putting all this down on paper if you were on hiatus for two months? What were you presented with? Like a scrapbook of dozens and dozens of pages? <laughs> no, that... it was it really was a script. Now, I'm sure Nicola, Nicholas Dante did it. They didn't keep me on for another $100 a week. Right, right. We were all <laughs> off. We were all off. How long did the second workshop last? It was six weeks, then a short hiatus. And we were right into production. 
the thing that stands out about the second workshop is that we spent the whole workshop practically working on one. As you might recall in chorus line, one appears in different ways during the audition and during the Cassie uh, Zach scene and back of that scene are the chorus line rehearsing one. It's just such a brilliant piece of theatricality. I just think it's a miracle that Michael Bennett had that in his mind, how to break that all down so that at the end, when they come out in their satin costumes and top hats, it's kind of a brilliant moment. It's an amazing progression. Structurally, it's textbook. You said after the second workshop, you went right into production. Pretty much. Uh, so that means you had had design meetings, Robin Wagner, oh, yeah. Theron Musser. Exactly. Uh, Theone Aldridge, the trifecta of, of the design. I know. I feel so fortunate, you know. What was the process at that point? I mean, when you started, I'm assuming there, there were design. Did you attend any design meetings? I do have a kind of a funny story about the design of a chorus line. And Robin Wagner had decided that, that with Michael that he was going to have these five triptychs at the back of the stage with three-sided thing, the black, the, the mirrors, and the, the splash at the end. The day came when they were loading in the upstage units. Of course, they're all covered in brown paper. And they pulled off the, the covering on the front part, which was the starburst. They pulled off the second side, which was the black velour. And then they took the paper off of the mirrors. And they were plexiglass mirrors. And it was like going to the fun house. Right. And all of us, Michael, Bob Avian, everybody in the house... It's just hysterical with laughter. So they had to take all those off. And they spent a lot of time coming up with figuring out how to use the Mylar. When we got to tech, it was so exciting for me. I mean, uh, I just have these clear memories of, for a chorus line, was work with Theron and Michael, uh, because it was all about the lighting. I learned so much from that production about calling a show that dances with lights. Theron and her sneakers and her Virginia Slim cigarettes climbing around on the scaffolding and <laughs> instructing the follow spot operators and everything. Uh, oh, she was fearless. Theron yeah. was absolutely fearless. Yeah. But I'm sort of hoping that one of the things that comes out of our discussion of a chorus line ballroom in Dreamgirls is yeah. going to highlight Theron's work. There are a couple monographs that are published about mm. her. There's not a great book that uh, really highlights her, her her work. So I'm hoping it's true. Yeah, you're, uh, no pun intended. We're gonna you're gonna shed some light on uh, <laughs> uh, on Theron. Uh, I, I'm just curious. Uh, uh, technically, what kind of staff did you have when I realized we were going into production and I needed another stage manager? You know, I so early in my career, I had never had to hire an assistant. I thought of a person, I thought, well, this is great, but I wonder whether he'd even be interested. And the fellow was a, a stage manager up at the Love Drama Center during the summer seasons that my father used to produce up there. He mentored me one season, taught me the ropes of his, as a stage manager. His name is Frank Hartenstein. 
Frank. Oh, our dear Frank Hartenstein. <laughs> but Frank said yes, and he was more experienced than I was. Frank will forever be more experienced than, than anybody. anybody. <laughs> With all due respect, Jeffrey. Right, right, right. There's not going to ever be anyone like Frank Hartenstein. No, no, I know, I know. And I was so grateful for him. In the second workshop, it dawned on these dancers that they've been working for $100 a week, going on hiatus, not doing much else, coming back for another $100 a week. And the straw that cut the, that broke the camel's back is when Merle Dubusky came down to the theater to pass out waivers that the dancers were supposed to sign in which it said, we can use your image. Here's your dollar. Please sign. And Tommy Walsh and Priscilla Lopez and a couple of other we wouldn't call them ringleaders, but they were adamant about this, that this was totally unfair, that the central image of the advertising was going to be this iconic thing. And they made a big stink about it. This was really important to them, and uh, they won. And then the whole structure of the way payment was going to be made based on whether you have been in the original taping sessions, when your original cast member, whether you were... It was your story, but you never, you didn't ever play the part. I guess we should march on to previews. Do you remember how many weeks you were in tech rehearsal before the first preview? For, yeah, It was relatively short. I mean, yeah. it was probably a week or tops. Just to go back uh, to yeah. Frank Hartenstein for a second. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I did Tommy with him and how of to course. succeed in business with Frank. And sex and longing. And sex and longing with Frank. And Frank just didn't even need any ramp up time. He intuitively sensed what the temperature of the room was. He knew what the relationships were all about. And he knew exactly what had to be accomplished in the time that was given to accomplish and it. And this is what was happening during that chorus line crease in the second workshop. He was backstage. So he's amongst them. And in her, in his quiet way, he he got the whole story from every point of view. He was so instrumental on every show I ever worked on. There was a lot of human interaction that had to be executed in order to get that scenery to move. And when we were working on Sex and Longing and you had me down to your studio with Frank, and you gave a demonstration on your computer. I just thought that was the coolest thing I had ever seen. I was, but uh, uh, to your point about physical interaction with scenery and everything, when you think of what I was dealing with backstage at the Beaumont in the 2000s in terms of automation, and I think back to Dreamgirls, which had, I don't know, something like 285 limits that had to be put into those towers that not only were moving this way, but also spinning. That was stagehand on the stage with a tape measure. And there's the go and it drifts three inches too far. And he gets on a radio and radios down to the stagehand in the trap room, who's there with the screwdriver and twists it a little this way. <laughs> and they back it up. Dreamgirls opened in 1981. Yeah. And the technology 
in 10 years time from 81 to say 91. In 81, you're talking about a technology that was still not all that sophisticated. Just to run the towers on Dreamgirls, we had two automation operators. One was handling the towers moving this way and that way. And the other was handling moving them around, spinning them around right. and doing the travelers and everything else. We're talking about previews for a chorus line. Mm -hmm. They were trying to figure why I think it was Tits and Ass wasn't working. And because it was the way it was labeled in the program, it gave away what the lyrics were. And that's when they uh, rewrote Dance in the program. Looks three. Say that again. Dance 10 looks three. Right. And from what the research and reading, yeah. everyone says that that's when the, when the song finally worked. Pap was all gung-ho to take it uptown to the Beaumont. Michael kept saying to Joe, but Joe, it's a chorus line. What, do you, what kind of a line are you going to have at a thrust stage? <laughs> Amphitheater theater. <laughs> did Joe just listen to reason or did Michael have to be Really put he his listened, foot down. He to, listened to reason, especially uh, after Michael made a call to Bernie up at the Schubert organization and pretty much got the money he needed to do it. So I think it might be interesting to talk a little bit about the move from the Newman to the Schubert Theater, just in terms of that transition, what moving it into a larger, not only a right, larger theater, right. but a Broadway theater. Right. What that what if that involved technically and aesthetically? Well, of course, there was the famous argument that uh, the Schubert's had with Theron Musser and Michael about uh, the positioning of the follow spot platform. That went on for quite a while, and Theron won. <laughs> she was also, it because she were losing seats or what? No, she she was she wanted the exact angle for the follow spots that we had down in the Newman Theater. And we got that in a bigger theater. You know, the Schubert's also lost. They did lose seats because the Theron insisted that I call the show from the front of the house. I was in the back row of the balcony. Of the balcony, of course. Of course. Yeah. I was looking at some of the reviews of Chorus Line. And you, you know, what first struck me were the people that wrote them. <laughs> All those years ago, and I, I hate to be talking like some sort of ghost of Christmas past, but Clive Barnes, Martin Godfrey, John Simon, Walter Kerr. Walter Kerr. Yeah. We don't have those writers, those critics anymore. You and as I, I was reading some of these, not only could they talk in complete sentences and ideas, they could also write. Yeah. Uh, and they could write with a certain sort of style. Yeah. Uh, and they also had a wit about them. They had a sense of humor, which which is oddly present in all of the reviews. So uh, Clive Barnes in the New York Times said the conservative word for a chorus line <laughs> yeah. might be tremendous or perhaps terrific. The reception is so shattering that it is surprising if by the time you read this, the New York Shakespeare Festival's Newman Theater is still standing. Standing. I mean, I mean everything oh, that he Thank you for remembering that, me to that phrase from that review. It's but, truly but, wonderful. But everything that a critic could possibly put into a rave review, of course, like tremendous, terrific, shattering, yes. and then make a joke about the Newman Theater, theater. falling exploding. to the ground. 
you know, because of the impact of this piece is absolutely brilliant writing and and also very typical. I mean, John Simon does the same thing. He says, so authentic, interesting, and finally innovative. A chorus line is something new and historic in musical comedy. From John Simon. That is John Simon. Martin Godfrey in the New York Post, chorus line is a major event in the development of the American musical theater. With this show, Bennett steps out on his own as a star director and choreographer, one whose staging wizardry and theatrical muscle are deepened by a swelling humanity. He is now a major creative force, and the chorus line is purely and simply magnificent, capturing the very soul of our musical theater. Oh, goodness sake. Yeah. You know, an interesting thing there that All of Michael's musicals, and sadly, we don't have more to think about because he left us so early, is that they are warm, heart-filled musicals, for better or worse. I mean, ballroom for worse, (laughs) because all of his wizardry and the perfection of the physical production because of his team and his vision was put on top of a little slight story that could never sustain it. In any yeah, way. That's interesting. Let's move on to Ballroom. Ballroom, I love working on the show. I mean, it was uh, it was a little gimmicky for uh, a set for a slight story. But, uh, you know, it had a turntable. It had sliding panels and stuff coming out to make living rooms and all of that kind of stuff. And then magically turning into a ballroom with a and then, mirror ball. And about 100 mirror balls. I see. Yeah, it was call. just everywhere. What is typical of a chorus line gets a little bit more sophisticated, maybe a little too over the top uh, for ballroom, and then sort of settles down again for dream girls. The common denominator in terms of what carries the story is Theron's lights. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was, design-wise, there were moments in ballroom in the air in terms of color, movement of light. She was doing color mixing that was happening in your head. She had a way with color, which was extraordinary. And when you think about ballroom, quartz lamps really hadn't started being used. Remember the color wheels? Those dance sequences, as you say, became saturated with these extraordinarily rich, complicated shafts of light. The computers at that time, although they had become a little bit more sophisticated and and I think because of Theron's work and her importance, you know, helped to pioneer. When I saw it in previews, the board went down and there were a number of stage hands trying to, with flashlights that had to come out onto the stage to rescue Dorothy Loudon while Theron was racing up a steep set of steps to the (laughs) lighting booth as Theron was. Yeah, there were several things that stopped shows along the way with the Michael Bennett musicals. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back a little bit about about Ballroom. Michael was working with Jerome Haas, who was the book writer, I think, yes, on absolutely. a thing called Roadshow, had written for television Queen of the Stardust Ballroom. and It had a very successful airing on CBS. I think 30 million people saw it. Interesting. With Maureen Stapleton and... The television play is interesting in that it has a score, a musical score. And at some points, characters B and Al 
talk-sing sections of inner thoughts. Mm-hmm. And you could see that would be maybe attractive to Michael with the chorus line. Of course, it was all about leaving reality on the stage and going into these other realms. It also lent itself to figuring out a wonderful way to do dance and choreography. And I think that swayed him into thinking that it would make a good musical. Like Joe Papp said about chorus line, when is this going to stop being therapy? I want a Broadway show. Ballroom was a slight story about a widow and her henpecking sister. And every time we would have to go into those scenes in performance, you just felt the air go out of that show totally. So it was always trying to reinflate itself. It was a terrible disappointment to the audiences. And the interestingly enough that the reviews were all kindly, but ultimately say it didn't work as a musical. What was exceptional about the material was the moral question and the age question. Never before had a widow in her 50s been presented. No, I'm so glad that you brought that up because he... He was attracted to that idea in the way that he was attracted to the kids in Chorus Line. Michael Bennett said, I have 20 friends over the age of 40 who will never dance on Broadway again if I don't do ballroom. I want to see those people on Broadway. So it really was a labor of love. Yeah, truly Uh, was. I think also what you were beginning to outline in terms of structure and how these three musicals are conveyed, which I think is interesting, is that a chorus line told the story basically through dance. Ballroom, as you sort of pointed out, uh, for better or for worse, told the story through the book. And it wasn't until he got to Dreamgirls that he, I think, began to understand how to put all of that together. I mean, in Dreamgirls, it's always pointed out that most of the dialogue is sung, that it's more recitative, uh, and that the dance numbers are integrated into the story in a way that's much more seamless, certainly, than ballroom, and much much more sophisticated than what he accomplished uh, in Chorus Line, even though Chorus Line... Yeah, those emotional conversations of a Chorus Line are are inner thoughts. Yeah. In the structure of the the play and in Dreamgirls, they're right out there (laughs) and it's being sung. Yeah. And Michael said to me once that one of the things that he had learned about doing theater pieces is that they're like cardinal rules you have to follow that within the first five minutes, 10 minutes tops, you have had to tell your audience not only what the story is about, but how it's going to be told. And it's the how it's going to be told is really, really important. So that in Dreamgirls, it immediately, you have the vamp underneath everything and you have a piece of sung dialogue before you even get to the first number. In Ballroom, you go nine pages before you get to any music. It's a lot of book, too much book. It is. And the story, unfortunately, is even though I think, the, uh, like I pointed out with the moral 
aspect of it and the age aspect of it, yeah. which I, for its time was... Was very much part of what that was about, yeah. It was remarkable that the writing didn't support that as well as it might have, that there was so much attention put on the book and those the scenes in the junk shop, the scenes in her living room, exactly. the scene, you know, the different characters, her family, you know, her son, her daughter, her sister, uh, her sister-in-law. Then you have to get in the denizens of the ballroom. And yeah, versus. Those relationships. The versus the ballroom people who yeah. were, the damn thing is called ballroom. It isn't called my living room. My angst. living room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think if there had been a way to simplify, to streamline, or at least that focus would not have been so desperate. But this was something that happened. And I'm hoping to tag you for Lincoln Center Theater podcast and, and Bernard Gersten. But this was the famous split up between Bernie yeah, Gersten. That and was Pat. happening all during this heat. How were you affected by that? Because your mentor and guide was Bernie, but Joe was your boss. After the Australian production, I came back. I, I took a break. So I wasn't there for that. But I do know that the firing happened over after Michael had come down to Joe to talk about ballroom and to pitch ballroom and how he wanted to do it in terms of workshops and all that. He wanted to get the gang together. Let's make another one, right? And Pap said no. He said he wasn't interested. It wasn't the kind of theater he wanted to do. And besides, he didn't want to just do shows and take them to Broadway. All of his populism was kind of coming out. He's making millions of dollars. This, the show has saved the Shakespeare Festival for, for years to come. Bernie was so offended that he said, well, I'm just going to go off and produce it myself. And Joe, this is in there between in the hallway between their two offices. Pap said, no, you're not. And Bernie said, yes, I am. You know, and, you know, so fire me. And Pap said, you're fired. And this relationship just went out the window. I mean, it was crazy. But he felt honor bound to follow Michael. And so by the time I came back on the scene, the offices were at 890 Broadway. There was a lot of renovation going on. We were kind of cheek by jowl and funny old leftover offices when it was a manufacturing factory. And on we went. <laughs> the workshop for Ballroom was a five-month workshop. It was extraordinary. It just went on and on and on and on with little breaks in between. We were rehearsing at a studio right down the block, it seemed, from Roseland. <laughs> it was kind of odd. And then, of course, there was the long, we were several months up there in Stratford. It was, uh, seems like forever we were up there. Was that because of uh, the time it took to load it in and tech it? And... Well, and then working on it. We had quite a few performances. It seems like we were up there for three months. It was getting... It was getting tiresome, to tell you the truth. There was a lot of tenseness amongst Michael and Bob and the creatives, and you sensed that things weren't going well in their minds. The reviews weren't, except for legendary Richard Eater, who is credited with having closed the show, but Howard Kissel in Women's Wear Daily said, this is genuine theater choreography. It creates characters and drama. And uh, Michael also won the Tony Award for choreography yes. for that. But I, I think what he says is sort of the signature 
you know, headline or banner over Michael Bennett's parade that it's genuine theater choreography. It creates characters and drama. And Sondheim sort of backed this up a little bit. He said what Bennett had was a sense of the tradition of the musical theater combined with the dramatic imagination. The only person I know that had it more than he was Jerry Robbins, who Michael always looked up to with great admiration. But it's a sense of what Sondheim's talking about, about the tradition of the musical theater, which Michael was steeped in. Right. I mean, it was his backyard. It truly know? was. Yeah. And uh, he he was going to he changed things, but he was going to change things based on this deep, solid foundation he grew up on. Well, you do get drawn into the storyline of those shows. You do. Dreamgirls is a whole nother kettle. Dreamgirls, Michael was now giving over to doing workshops of productions that he wanted to generate out of 890 Broadway. Tom Ion was the one I ran into at 890 when I got back into the swing. But what I was going to ask was Tom, because there were a couple workshops that Michael was producing at 890 Broadway, but the book and lyrics, who you just mentioned, Tom Ion was also directing at that point. Were you involved in it when Tom Ion was the director? No. After Ballroom, Ballroom ended. Uh, despite the kindness of the reviews that we look back on now, and there are many people, if they're still alive, remember it with great fondness. I remember Ballroom with tremendous amount of fondness because the, uh, the dancing ensemble was so extremely professional, old school professional, combined with so much heart. Many of them had gone back to their hometowns and open dance studios. And they got the call. I mean, we had an open call for ballroom that was extraordinary. People came from all over the United States who were between that age range and could dance. And we had open auditions for it. But in terms of the chronology after ballroom, the most opulent opening night party I had never, it was the hugest example of self-congratulations on display as the top of the World Trade Center. Those were the days when all the producers went into a room and they listened to the television reviews and they called the, the editor's desks at the New York Times and wherever and had the, the print reviews read to them. And a pail came over that party. And it it was like a balloon deflating. It was extremely unsettling because it was almost mean-spirited. It was a flop. And Michael took it as a flop. And it just angered him a lot. After Ballroom, I got a call from Bernie Gersten because Francis Coppola wanted to hire a stage manager on his, his group for One from the Heart, this movie he was making. And Bernie was the executive producer. And so I got that job and I went out there and I was out there for with my family and, you know, the Mercedes Benz and the house in the Hollywood Hills, <laughs> working for Francis Coppola for 
a year. The deal was when I went out there, Michael said, but if I call you and say, I need you, you got to come back immediately. <laughs> and the call came and uh, I went back as soon as I could. I saw a reading of what Tom Ian had been working on with a lot of the cast that were in the original production. That was before I went to California. And then uh, when I came back, of course, Michael had become partner with him in terms of the writing and took over the whole damn thing, producing and everything. And directing. And directing. And the book had, had uh, solidified into, I guess, pretty, cl at this point, pretty close. Although I think it was called One Night Stand for a while. So I, I participated in a workshop and then we went into production. They're like, well, it opened uh, December 20th, 1981. That's right. So you would have gone into production like September yeah, yeah. of 81. In terms of the workshop theme, Michael famously said, workshops allow you to be wrong. Certainly At the performer's expense. How many weeks were you participating in uh, rehearsals before you went into text? I think four. Even at Lincoln Center, we would have four weeks of rehearsal and then tech, which was another two weeks. Tryouts in Boston for like nine weeks, in which it said that most of the show was created in the tryouts. I sort of take that to mean it was fine-tuned. and Yes, uh, fine. it was fine-tuned. Also, uh, the legendary Harold Wheeler was asked at this point to like reorchestrate the entire show. Harold Wheeler must have been like, working overtime if he had to orchestrate the entire show. I think show. that might have been a bit of an exaggeration, but Oh really? But Harold Wheeler was he was kind of around a lot earlier. I mean, I I met Harold Wheeler during the chorus line period. Michael Bennett had hired Michael Peters to do the choreography. He had hired Harold Wheeler to reorchestrate. Well, that's two against a sea of white people. Right. You know? And it happened in the stage management department too, because I said, I said to Michael, aside from the two singers, it was an entirely black company and, right. and have a white management, it just wouldn't do. So we hired as a third stage manager, a black stage manager. Michael said the important thing about dream girls for me was that I approached the material as if, cultural assimilation is something that has happened in America. Dreamgirls is not about being black. It's about being human. It's a black musical, but it's about people. It's not a black version of a white show. But what's interesting about Dreamgirls, the whole storyline with uh, Curtis and Dina mirrors the Barry Gordy, Diana Ross relationship. Also, James Thunder Early not being allowed mm -hmm, into mm -hmm. white established showrooms is a major thing. Yeah. And the whole co-opting of the Cadillac car music and it being sanitized into a white commercial hit. The musical is rife with this social commentary. Tom Mayan was very dark, very much all about cultural assimilation and to come to terms with the stealing, the theft. Well, it's interesting because, you know, what had to have happened then in order for a specific characterization of, of African-American music, you wonder if it hadn't been so difficult, if there hadn't been so many roadblocks, 
if there hadn't been so many hurdles to leap over in the music world, uh, what character that music might have taken. Going back to ballroom for a second, mm -hmm. Sarah must have had a sense of humor. I, she oh, I, she had know, a great sense of humor. Theron said, as she's talking about ballroom, if any show ever proved that scenery, lights, costumes, and staging can't do the whole thing, ballroom was it. <laughs> I mean, I can see her there with her Virginia Slims. With her Virginia Slims. <laughs> the end quote here, this is Michael talking again. He said, the hardest thing about musicals is that they're about collaboration. I never work alone. If you're in a room with me, it's because I know how talented you are. Uh, Jeff, I think Michael Bennett was fortunate to have you as a collaborator in the room. I think, <laughs> I think, you're, I think you know, your intellect, uh, and dare I say, wit and patience allowed Michael to do the work that he has become so legendary for. And I just wanted to thank you for spending all this much time with us today, uh, chronicling this sort of history. I hope it's inspiring you to really work on your diaries and your memoirs and to get all of this down because this history is very important. And you are a part of that history in a very specific and a very important sort of way. So again, I wanted to thank you for being on uh, I Am The Space Where I Am. And I look forward to another conversation in the future about Lincoln Center Theater. But I hope that people who hear this will be inspired to look more deeply into uh -huh. it. Well, thank you for those kind words. It was a pleasure. You're welcome. We've run out of time. I'd like to thank our guests and you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please join us for new episodes featuring designers, playwrights, actors, and directors discussing the lives and careers of legendary theater luminaries and how their work developed. This is your host, John Arnone, for I Am the Space Where I Am.